from the outside, they seem to be the perfect family. A doting father and a seemingly caring mother, with three happy little girls all living in suburban bliss. But the disturbing truth lay just beyond the surface. Behind the smiling framed photographs on the walls, a sinister darkness was brewing and becoming more prolific. And one night in September of 2021, in a quiet neighborhood in a small town that the family had just moved to, the most disturbing crimes would be committed. And soon, so many worldwide would be following the controversial case. A case of young lives stolen so tragically and so abruptly. This is their story. This is the heartbreaking case of the Dickerson family murder. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. Murder and Mayhem is the first trauma-informed true crime episodic series in South Africa that explores real-life crimes from a psychological viewpoint, hosted by a mental health professional. Every week, via video format, online the official Bella Monsoon YouTube channel, as well as audio format via the podcast, a new case is examined and together we delve headfirst into the meaning and motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me on a weekly expedition into the mind behind the macabre as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Disclaimer, today's episode may be triggering to some as it involves the mention of not only murders of minors, but also engages within the sphere of mental illness, particularly within postnatal depression and depression. When the news of this case broke, it drew attention for many reasons, and ever since, it has been the topic of heated debate. As there is such a sheer amount of information that came to light during the trial, for ease of understanding, I'll be sharing this narrative in a chronological order, including some of the information learned post trial as I tell the story. Our narrative begins with Lauren Fawkes. The eldest child born to Wendy and Malcolm Fawkes, she had a difficult childhood. She had a lot of problems at the all-girls school she attended with both teachers and friends. She was never invited to a dance or a prom and she struggled to make friends growing up. This led to her dealing with mental health issues from the age of 15 years old. She was described as being a perfectionist and someone who was highly organized. She also often anticipated things to go wrong and generally was quite anxious. She ended up finishing school though and she went on to study medicine and become a general practitioner. And in the years to follow, she would meet Graham Dickerson. Graham himself was also a doctor, an orthopedic specialist. He was quite different to her in many ways. The biggest being that he was quite optimistic. He always tended to see the glass as half full rather than half empty. The pair fell in love and in May of 2006, they were married. Although Lauren had wanted to specialize in neurology or gynecology, after marrying Graham, she set her career aside to have children. The last time she would practice as a GP would be in 2012. In the years that would follow, she would return to the medical sphere in a way, as she would work part-time as a manager for her husband's practice. Unfortunately, after trying to fall pregnant for a period of time with difficulties, the couple had turned to fertility specialists. In 2013, Lauren would prematurely give birth to a baby girl at 18 weeks old, Sarah, who tragically died shortly after birth. Because the baby was under 20 weeks, it was treated as a miscarriage, effectively seen as medical waste. This left no real opportunity for there to be closure in the form of a funeral or ceremony. 
It is also reported that Lauren was in a state of deep grief for around two months after that, crying every day. After further consultation with fertility specialists, Lauren would end up undergoing 17 rounds of IVF treatment. The process itself is notorious for the emotional, physical and financial tolls it takes on the individual and their family. A friend of Lauren's who had also undergone IVF treatments around the same time, although she did less than half the amount of treatments Lauren had, would later say in an interview that she could have easily ended up in Lauren's position. But I'm really jumping ahead now. The couple would end up deciding to use donor eggs, which would result in the pregnancy and birth of the Dickerson's first daughter, Leonay. During the pregnancy, Lauren was very anxious, and after the birth, she struggled mentally. In 2015, she would see a psychiatrist, and she was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, postpartum depression, and anxiety. She was also placed on medication to assist her in managing her mood. By the time Leonay was around 18 months old, Lauren was apparently in a better space and the couple were allegedly having a good time watching their child develop regardless of some of the sleep deprivation that came with it. It was a few years later when Lauren would fall pregnant again, this time with twins. During one of the pregnancy scans it was discovered that one of the girls had a cleft palate. This diagnosis had caused Lauren much stress as she worried about the general health as well as feeding issues. After the birth however it was discovered that the condition was far less serious than it expected. And so little Maya and Carla were born in 2018. Baby Carla would undergo surgery at just five months old, with both of her arms put into splints afterwards to keep her from touching her face post-surgery. A day and night nanny were also hired to help ease the demands that were placed on Lauren. Within the home, the division of parenting was quite old-fashioned, with Lauren bearing the brunt of the parenting load as Graham used to work long or very late hours. Graham later would, however, describe Lauren as an extremely good mother. It was said that she was quite overprotective and almost neurotic over her children though, not even letting them play on the family jungle gym and worrying about pool covers and the likes. The children regardless grew up happy, loved and full of life. Leonay was the cuddly big sister. Maya was known for carrying her dolls everywhere and Carla, well Carla was the brave one. Born with a cleft lip but overcoming any difficulties as well as surgery and becoming a daring explorer. Life in South Africa was also good for the Dickersons in many ways. They lived in Pretoria in a home that they had built together after getting married. A four-bedroom house with an almost hectare-sized garden, fitted out with a trampoline and jungle gym. The family had a gardener, nanny and all the help they needed. In 2020, however, they had sold that home in anticipation for their big overseas move, and they had moved into a modern, comfortable, and spacious rental. Maria Mandy Sibonioni, who was the former domestic worker for the Dickerson family for three years before they immigrated, was heartbroken to hear the news of everything that had happened. She was there when the twin girls were born, and she was present to fetch them from the hospital when they were only four days old. She described the family as always happy and she would even go on vacation with them. Of the girls, she would say, they were such nice children, they listened when you told them not to do that and when they wanted something, they would ask. Lauren would also state that just a mere six months before the tragedy that would occur, she was the happiest that she had been in over a decade. She was not using her antidepressants, she was engaged in CrossFit three times a week and was no longer binge eating. 
for her, this was the first time that she had been off her antidepressants in over 10 years. By March of 2021, all of her medications had been stopped. And her positive mood, optimistic outlook, and improved body image was being maintained. But unfortunately, this was soon to come to an abrupt end. By July, lockdown restrictions were once again in place. Movement was limited and Lauren's mood, well, it plummeted. She would tell a friend, To be honest, I can't wait to get out of this damned country. I will fly tomorrow even if I can't say goodbye to anyone or bring anything with me. She was scared living in South Africa and she told another friend that the couple was sleeping with a 9mm calibre firearm next to their bed. She would also later describe to psychiatrist that at this time she felt, and I quote, ignored, unappreciated, and as though a big cloud hung over me. And things with her children weren't going as she had imagined or planned either. As their father was home more often due to the lockdown, and naturally he was the more affectionate of the two parents, the kids began to gravitate towards him. He would also later describe Lauren as not being a nurturing mother. She would often state that the twins would yell at her and Carlo would even sometimes physically lash out at her. Through a message sent to a friend, Lauren had written that her children were constantly asking, where is my daddy? A hundred times a day. Other messages to friends would go something along the lines of, I think God is trying to torture me by giving me the noisiest kids ever. They're making me crazy. Leonay kept me awake until 3am, but I sent her to school, otherwise I would strangle her. She moans all the f time. And although some of these feelings were verbalized, in messages at least, there was so much of darkness just under the surface that would come to light in a disturbing manner that would shock so many. But once again, I'm jumping the gun. All I'll say for now is that life within this seemingly happy family was not all that it seemed to be. As I mentioned, the unrest within South Africa, amongst everything else, spurred the couple to make the joint decision to immigrate and move to New Zealand. In June of 2021, the Dickerson family move was confirmed and approved. Lauren had said to friends, and I quote, Timaru, here we come. Immigration in the middle of a pandemic? I'm literally shaking. So excited. There is no COVID there. I'm so happy about New Zealand. In anticipation for the move, Lauren had also stopped taking any form of psychiatric medication, fearful that it would affect their immigration application. This is due to the fact that New Zealand has strict requirements and potential immigrants can be turned down on the basis of a chronic illness or if they do not meet an acceptable standard of health. A psychiatric report from February of 2020 confirmed Dickerson was not a danger to herself or any other person, and that she was able to function well despite her illness. For six months prior to the events that would unfold though, she would start to slip deeper and deeper into the darkness. As the clock ticked and the days drew closer to them leaving, Lauren was apparently only getting around two hours sleep a night, and was becoming preoccupied with her inability to be a good parent. Graham would later describe Lauren as not being in a good place during the months leading up to the tragedy. He would state that she struggled with motherhood and feelings of inadequacy. She would often verbalize that she did not think that she was a good mother. Just prior to the move in August of 2021, Lauren began to prescribe herself with antidepressants. Within South Africa, it is legal and apparently quite common for doctors to self-prescribe medication. 
During these weeks preceding the move, the Dickersons packed up the house, packed a container, and moved into Graham's mother's home with their kids and suitcases for the isolation required prior to traveling. The stay, which was only supposed to be around four to five days, was extended. As Lauren had a foot operation which was delayed due to lockdown restrictions at the hospital. During this time, Lauren's thoughts would hit an ultimate low. With Graham years later finding evidence about her state of mind at that time that would shock him to the core. And as communication between the two dwindled, D-Day for immigration arrived. And on the 26th of August, the family left South Africa. Lauren would describe the journey as being horrendous. So terrible, in fact, that by the time the family had reached New Zealand, she had felt, and I quote, like there was no hope. And things would only get more difficult from there. After setting foot in the country, the couple and their three children entered compulsory isolation and quarantine, MIQ, as per New Zealand's guidelines. For those of you unaware of what this process looks like, let me break it down for you really quickly. During these two weeks, the family is confined to a hotel room. Food is delivered to the hotel room door and no one is allowed to leave the room except for an hour of exercise in the courtyard once per day. It has been described by many as being tough and traumatic. Two weeks later though, it was over. The Dickersons left MIQ, flew to Christchurch and eventually moved into a rented home in a block of flats that were reserved for health officials in Timaru. Shortly after exiting this quarantine, Lauren had shared a post on Facebook congratulating her husband on their 15th wedding anniversary. The post had read, Happy 15th wedding anniversary, Graham Dickerson. What an adventure. We have truly created a beautiful family and had many good times together. May the next years be more blessed, more happy, and may the kids let us sleep. Thank you for everything you do for us and your unwavering dedication to loving and providing for us. You are my everything. But many of you who follow my episodes closely will know by now that not everything is always as it seems. The truth is, Lauren did not find Timaru to be the place that she imagined. Timaru is home to around 29,000 individuals and is located in the southern Canterbury region of New Zealand. Although reported to be homely and welcoming, Lauren found the people, especially the children at Leonay's school, to be unkempt and overweight. And she was unable to get over how small the homes were in Timaru as compared to those in South Africa. During that initial week, they had also experienced a power cut, which was far too reminiscent of South Africa for her liking. On the first day of being in their new home, the children had apparently woken up at 4.30am in the morning, ran into the bedroom, pushed Lauren aside, allegedly, and just wanted to spend time with Graham. Lauren would later say that she felt so cross in that moment she could have hurt them. In addition to acclimating to this new world that she wasn't sure if she liked in the least, Graham's work was also starting far sooner than she had anticipated. An acquaintance who had met Lauren first online before meeting her in person would hear from her that Lauren thought her husband would have been home more often to help out, but he had gone to 
to work every day and life had become overwhelming, especially without all the extra help that she had grown so used to. On the day that the pair had enrolled their children in the Timaru Christian School, a South African expat, Letitia Smith, was asked by Graham to look after Lauren as the last two weeks had broken her. She would also later recall that Lauren appeared to have a dark cloud around her. She said, and I quote, It seemed like she had the weight of the world on her shoulders. She didn't talk much and didn't seem like the person I saw on Facebook. I could tell Lauren wasn't coping well. Letitia would try to reach out on September 16th to invite the family to dinner, but her message was left unanswered. And that was the last contact she would have with them. After enrolling the children at school, the pair had started to look for rental properties, but Lauren was highly unimpressed by how cold and run down the houses looked. Given that they currently had a place to stay, even though Lauren was not a fan of it, they decided to put a pin in the search. For the time being at least. Just four days before the tragedy, the Dickerson family attended a dinner at the home of one of Graham's work colleagues from Timaru Hospital. Nothing appeared to be out of the ordinary, with the wife of Graham's colleague stating that the couple showed some affection towards each other and the children appeared to be happy. Lauren had still also messaged afterwards thanking the couple for their hospitality. But it was just a few days later that disaster would strike. And so the 16th of September dawned. The previous evening, Lauren had not slept for more than three hours. That very night, she had a strong sense, and I quote, that I needed space from the twins to sort out my emotions. She vehemently believed, according to a later psychiatric report, that if the kids, mostly the twins, were away for a while, the couple might be able to manage. In hindsight, that thought would allude to so much. And so Lauren awoke that day, still feeling all of those feelings, but apparently by this point, it was nothing new. The day, however, began with much excitement for the children, as it was the twins' first day at preschool. They were both full of glee, Carla picking out a pink ballerina dress to wear for the day. The previous day had been Leonay's first day at her new school, and she had already settled in so well with both her peers and her teachers. Around 10.47am, the preschool had sent Lauren a picture of the two, sitting at a desk eating snacks. Whilst the twins were at school, Lauren replied to immigration-related emails. You see, the family had immigrated on a critical purpose visitor's visa, which was only valid for one year. They were, however, in the process of applying for a work-to-resident visa, which was valid for three years. And that's what Lauren was busy doing. She had then picked up Leonay from school and apparently dealt with Carla, who was throwing a tantrum. Both herself and Graham had then taken them all to the park. Whilst there, Graham had walked away and the children had instantly cried for him. Lauren would later tell a psychiatrist that in that moment, she experienced an overwhelming amount of negative feelings, saying that, and I quote, she felt like a failed mother because they didn't want to be with her. The family had then come home, Lauren had made dinner, well, chicken nuggets for the girls, and they had told her that it wasn't enough, which had also apparently sent her down a further negative spiral. 
Graham and Lauren had then bathed all the kids and put their pajamas on. Between 6pm and 10pm, Lauren would receive multiple messages from friends back in South Africa. All of these messages went unread and unanswered. Unanswered because at the Dickerson home, apparently the kids were out of control. And Graham... Well, Graham had left that evening at around 7pm to attend a work function meeting. Lauren would later state that as she said goodbye to him, she felt like it was surreal, like she was not in her body. And not 20 minutes after he had left, did the girls apparently start to act out. And it was then, after initially locking herself in the bathroom, that Lauren decided to go to the garage and search for cable ties. She would state... And I quote, There was just so much noise. I just couldn't anymore. I was just so tired of screaming, saying no. Just a quick warning, the following section contains the events that occurred that evening and may be disturbing to some. Lauren had then exited the garage and told her three young children that they were going to make necklaces beginning to attach the cable ties to each other. The two youngest ones didn't quite know what was going on, but the older daughter, Liane, was apparently angry, wanting to know why Lauren was doing this to them. She had also allegedly told Lauren that she was the best mom and that she loved her. Lauren would later chillingly state the following, and I quote, because you cannot even make this up. The first twin, Carla, was being really, really horrible to me lately. That's why I did her first. She had then proceeded to attempt to use the cable ties to end her children's lives. But when she discovered that it was not doing what she had intended it to do quick enough, she had opted to smothering her children with their own blankets. The last words that she apparently uttered to them were, and I quote, Mummy's very sick and is going to die. I can't leave you behind because I don't know who is going to look after you. She would also later say to a psychiatrist, and I quote, I loved them so much that I couldn't leave them behind if I was going to leave this world. Although she would later describe herself during the time as having an out-of-body experience, after she had ended each of their lives, she had still checked for vital signs to make sure that they were really gone. Later, a psychiatrist would hear that she had not called Graham or left the house during this period as she wanted to finish it all. She later claimed that she had wanted to end her own life, but after seeing how long the cable ties had taken to work for her daughters, she had opted for another method. She had then allegedly wanted to use a knife, however all the knives in the home were too blunt, and the one that she chose only made a superficial cut. She had then opted to use medication, a mixture of several, however not in high enough doses to do much. It would later become evident that there was no clear suicide plan in place. She would also later tell more than one psychiatrist that she denied any symptoms of psychosis during the evening. 
Keep that in mind for later. And as Lauren sat in the eerie silence of the home with what she had done, Graham would return just a few hours later, just before 10pm. He had walked into the living room and saw Lauren standing by the kitchen. She looked wobbly and unsteady on her feet. And so he had asked her if she was okay, but she had not replied. He had then asked her again and she had simply responded with something along the lines of, it's too late. He had questioned the statement but received no response. He had then walked into his eldest daughter's bedroom to say goodnight and that is when he realized that something was incredibly wrong. He walked over to Leonay's bed and noticed that she was covered in a blanket, which he moved. That would reveal her pale face, drained of life, cable ties around her neck. He then ran straight to the room of his baby girls, the twins. The same sickening scene met him there. Frenzied, he grabbed a pair of scissors, ran back to Leonay's room, asking Lauren all this time what she had done. He then cut the cable ties from around Leonay's little neck, grabbed her in his arms and ran back to the twins room to see if there was anything that he could do for them all. He frantically searched for any signs of life, any inklings of a heartbeat, hoping for a miracle. The next moments were a blur, just the memory of their pale white faces etched into his mind. He then called a friend, a colleague from Timuru, for help and he left the house. The last thing he saw before closing the door was Lauren, on her back with her eyes closed, in Liane's room. He wasn't sure if she was dead or alive. At around 9.40pm, neighbours in the area reported hearing a loud bang, which was followed by sobbing and moaning, emanating from the Dickerson's home. Graham was found outside the home, yelling, crying, screaming, distraught, constantly stating that it was his fault and she had done this to hurt me. First responders and constables Alexandra Schrader and William Turnbull would later recall receiving a message that a father had come home to find his three children deceased and that his wife was the one who did it. And shortly after 10pm on Friday, the 16th of September 2021, emergency services were called out to a Queen Street home in the suburb of Parkside. The scene that would await them would not easily be forgotten. As they entered the home, they saw cut cable ties on the floor. Lauren was found lying across the end of one of the beds. When asked her name, she responded, Lauren, but kept closing her eyes and continued to speak in a quiet, muffled manner. She would later be described as catatonic and vacant, with a small cut on her left forearm that was covered with a band-aid. She was asked if she had taken anything, but she responded that she had not. Police would then find nine pills inside a bin that appeared to be antidepressants, as well as an open packet of 100 cable ties on a shelf in the garage. A toxicology report would later confirm that there were no drugs or poisons found in the girl's systems. In Lauren's system, however, a urinary test would confirm antidepressants, anti-anxiety and anti-nausea medication, along with tramadol. Inside the home, William would then enter the next room, where he would find twins Maya and Carla, tucked into their beds, sheets around their chest with a toy, whilst Leonay was lying half on one bed and half on the floor. 
40-year-old Lauren was then taken via ambulance to Timuru Hospital in a stable condition. And so would begin a case that would rock the inhabitants of not only the small town in Timuru, but also those thousands of kilometers away in South Africa. And as the news broke, the tributes began pouring in. A few days later, a large group of the South African expats in Timaru hosted a vigil for the Little Dickerson girls. During this, a letter was read that Graham had written. In it, he spoke not only of forgiving Lauren, but also of her being a victim in the tragedy, stating, amongst other things, and I quote, Our lives were turned upside down on September 16th, when our three precious angels were ripped away from us. Please also pray for my lovely Lauren, as I honestly believe that she is a victim of this tragedy as well. I have already forgiven her, and I urge you in your own time to do the same. It is the key to healing this loss we have all experienced. The community also managed to raise and donate over $25,000 to the Dickerson family to assist with support, burials, and so on. In the days that followed, a family member of Graham's was also granted an MIQ spot in New Zealand to provide support. After Lauren was taken into custody, the pair would exchange letters. As Graham expressed a lack of understanding of how the killings took place. But even for Graham, who had in a way defended Lauren, he had a limit too. In December of 2021, Graham left New Zealand to return to South Africa. Although he would come back briefly to apparently visit Lauren, he would not be present for the trial. So I'm pretty sure at this point you may be asking, well, Bella, what about Lauren? Well, Lauren woke up in hospital the next day in disbelief that she had survived and in shock when a charge sheet was brought to her hospital room. The charge sheet for the murder of her three daughters. It was the very next day, the 17th of December, that she was interviewed by Detective Michael Nieben. During the footage, which consists of about an hour, Lauren is seen sitting under a blue blanket with her arms wrapped around herself. During the interview, she was often difficult to understand. She mentioned that having the kids around her 24-7 was overwhelming. She mentioned going off of her medication due to allegedly feeling functional. Although she also admitted to having thoughts of wanting to hurt her children in the past, she stated that after quarantine, different, more intense thoughts had popped up. Lauren would later describe her deceased children in the following way during the police interview. These are all direct quotes. Leone is a dreamer. She's always thinking of some weird and wonderful plan or experiment or magic potion. But doesn't have ears. Not at all. She loves unicorns and fairies and painting. She's a very lovable little girl. She's become much more babyish though. This was in regards to her behavior after immigrating and lockdown. Carla is the first twin. She's a real little firecracker. She has got such a temper on her that you can't describe the aggression that comes out of that little body. And it scares me. It scares her dad. It scares her sisters because she climbs onto them and bites them. But then at school, they say, no, she's an angel, no problems. She is sporty and likes to play with the ball. Maya's a fruitcake. She just laughs and smiles at everybody. She's a real happy-go-lucky, but also experiencing the terrible twos right now. She was a little daddy's girl and stuck on him like Velcro. She would state that lockdown taught her one thing, and that was that 
she didn't know her kids at all. This initial interview would come under scrutiny later from the prosecuting team during the trial who questioned not only the location of the interview, which took place in a room with a sofa instead of the standard interview room, but also the sheer number of times that the detective during the interview had stated that he knew that it was hard for Lauren. Six times to be precise. When asked about the events of the previous night, she had said, and I quote, I basically, the kids were being wild again, jumping on the couches, not listening to what I'm trying to tell them. I made them all go lie in the bedroom so that they were together. But during the end, I basically had to suffocate them. The first twin, Carla, was being really, really, really horrible to me lately. She's been biting me and hitting me and scratching me and throwing tantrums 24 hours a day. And I just don't know how to manage that. That's why I did her first. But wait, there's more. Lauren would also go on to say in regards to her children, and I quote, Ever since they were born, mums always felt this instantaneous love for their children. And I never really experienced it with my kids. Like, I don't know what people are talking about. And then I think there was something wrong with me for not feeling that. And I did my best that I could. They definitely preferred their dad over me. The detective would also later be questioned as to why he had not asked outright if she had killed her children. He also used multiple positive affirmations when speaking to her, saying things like, you're doing really well, and I know this is really hard, and even, you're being so brave. No, seriously, I kid you not. He also would tell her, and I quote, there's no manual to being a parent. Regardless of what had been said, or rather omitted, on the 18th of September, Lauren Dickerson was officially charged with the murder of the three Dickerson girls. She would enter the Timaru district courtroom looking calm, with her arms folded to her chest, wearing a hooded sweatshirt and black pants. For the majority of her appearance, she stared at the floor and did not enter a plea. Judge Dravisky, the judge overseeing that hearing, then remanded her to the Hillmorton Hospital in Christchurch for psychiatric assessment until her next appearance. Over the weeks that followed, she'd refused to eat, dropping to 47 kilograms and ending up on round-the-clock watch. And so the months dragged on, with countless court delays due to her medical status. On the 23rd of June, 2023, almost two years after the murders, Lauren would appear for the first time in person, as previous court appearances had been via audio-video links. During the appearance, the court would hear that Lauren's defense were going to base their case in the trial on infanticide and insanity. Prior to this case, though, many were not even aware of what the term infanticide referred to. Infanticide, as the name suggests, is the intentional killing of infants or offspring. Interestingly, but more disturbingly, it was a widespread practice throughout human history, mainly used to dispose of unwanted children. Well, to ensure resources were not wasted on weak or disabled offsprings. Nowadays, though, although still occurring in some areas, 
areas, it is seen as highly unethical. In the legal sense, it is best described as a hybrid between a defense and an offense. Within the US, there is no charge or defense against infanticide. And in South Africa, it is allowed for defense in cases where the victims are under the age of 12 months old. New Zealand, however, has quite lenient laws regarding the act of infanticide, with the law applied up until the age of 10 years old. If found guilty of infanticide, the country's law states, for manslaughter, there is no presumptive sentence. As the least blameworthy form of culpable homicide, infanticide has a maximum penalty of three years imprisonment. So essentially, a slap on the wrist for murdering a child. But anyway, that's a conversation for another day. This law is largely impacted by the manner in which New Zealand view postpartum depression. And in Lauren's case, it was said that if the failure to fully recover from the effects of birth or the disorder resulting from childbirth is a contributory cause to the disturbance of the woman's mind, then that will be enough. Enough to prove the case of infanticide, that is. Interestingly enough, a psychiatrist who would later testify in Lauren's defense, Dr. Susan Hatters Friedman, had previously published several articles on the like. But... I'll get to that soon enough. And then, of course, the insanity defense. More of you would have likely heard of this one as it's almost colloquially used in many cases. Essentially, in an insanity defense, the defendant admits the action but asserts a lack of culpability based on mental illness. It asks the question, did Lauren know what was morally right or wrong at the time of the murders? What was her state of mind at that time? If she was to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, it would be up to the judge to decide her future, most likely a detention order under the Criminal Procedure Mentally Impaired Persons Act of 2003. This would see her detained at a secure mental health facility. Within New Zealand, the issue that arises is that there's no set time frame for how long someone could be hospitalized for, unlike a prison sentence. That means that someone who commits a crime and successfully uses this defense may spend less time in hospital than they would have in prison. So now, knowing everything that you do, Lauren's trial was set for the 17th of July, 2023. Over the period of four weeks that would follow, the 12 jurors, made up of eight women and four men, as well as the judge, Justin Cameron Mander, would hear from both the Crown, the term in New Zealand that refers to the authority of the government, basically the prosecution, as well as the defense, and a host of witnesses. From the onset, the stance of each was as follows. The prosecution, led by Andrew McRae, would seek to argue that Lauren was driven by resentment and frustration, thus committing the heinous acts because the children were misbehaving. They would assert that she was lucid, knew exactly what she was doing, and acted out of anger and frustration. They would seek to prove that her actions were calculated and deliberate, not a result of mental disturbance. Her children's behavior, which failed to conform to her standards, combined with the pressures she was experiencing, led her to snap. And then we had the defense. The defense, led by Karen Beaton, sought to prove that Lauren, who was a loving mother and wife, was suffering from major depressive disorder, was unwell at the time, and believed that she had to kill herself and take her daughters with her. 
They asserted that the major depressive episode from which she was suffering was linked to postpartum depression that was never resolved. They would conclude by stating, and I quote, if she had only been treated for her depression, things might have been different. And so the trial to establish whether Lauren was capable of understanding the moral wrongness of her actions would begin. On the first day of her trial, Lauren appeared calm, speaking only once to confirm her plea of not guilty to each murder charge. And over the weeks that would follow, those in the courtroom, the jury, and the judge would hear all that I'm about to share with you. So strap in, because you're about to get four weeks worth of information in a very short period of time. First up, they would hear about the first responders' accounts, many of whom struggled to remain composed when recalling the horrific scene. Then, of course, they would hear of Lauren's police interview and see the recording. You know, the one with the detective who turned the interview into a positive psychology session? Yeah, that one. They would then hear of Graham's two-hour and 50-minute interview with police, recorded the day after the murders. They would then hear and watch Graham's two-hour and 50-minute interview with police, recorded the day after the murders. Graham is seen sitting hunched over with his head in his hat before the officer begins the interview. His interview would not only shed light on how he had encountered the traumatic scene that day, but also into the months and years that led up to the tragedy. Graham would, at a later stage, give evidence via video link from Pretoria, although his parents, brother, and Lauren Dickinson sisters traveled from South Africa to attend the trial in person. What he would reveal during testimony would shock many, as it seemed in hindsight there were so many signs that were missed. Graham would start by mentioning that Lauren had spoken to him on three occasions about harming the children. The first incident to which he was referring to was May of 2019. During this incident, Lauren had spoken to Graham about thoughts she was having about harming the children. She had stated that she, and I quote, wanted to make the twins quiet. When asked by her husband how she would accomplish that, she had said, and I once again quote, maybe put a pillow over their heads, end quote. Graham, however, had simply attributed this to anxiety and depression and stated that he never felt as though his children were in danger or that she was capable of harming them. The second incident was in July of 2021. Lauren would also later tell a psychiatrist how at this point in time, the thoughts had worsened. One night after getting out the bath crying, Lauren spoke to Graham about how she had thoughts to give the children sleeping pills, putting them in a bath and cutting their femoral arteries. Yes, you did hear me correctly, and I kid you not. Graham had said, although he was surprised and concerned, he was not angry at Lauren. He did not believe once again that she was capable of doing any of the things that she spoke of. I mean, it does kind of sound a bit red flaggy to me though. I'm just saying. The third incident was when they were staying with his mother and isolating prior to the move. Lauren had told him that she was having those thoughts again, having thoughts of strangling the children with cable ties. 
Allegedly, during one of Lauren's breakdowns and according to court transcript, Graham had said something along the lines of, Do you know how crazy you sound? We're immigrating to New Zealand in 13 days. In a disturbing revelation, Graham would also admit that when he had returned to South Africa, in that very closet where Lauren had been packing prior to them immigrating, he had found three sets of cable ties strung together. Um, yeah, but I digress. Graham had then also apparently told Lauren during one of these moments that she should, and I quote, pull on your big girl panties and pull yourself together, end quote. Lauren would later confide in a friend that she cried before her husband went to work and before she went to bed, stating that she believed Graham thought she was crazy. There was also mention several times during the trial of Lauren's disturbing messages to her friends about killing her children, which Graham just wrote off as her joking around since apparently she had a more satirical sense of humor. He believed that she was just venting the frustrations of a parent. Stressed out parent or not these messages are truly something else though you've been warned a digital forensic expert would find these messages on her phone some of which read as follows and these are all direct quotes i am in the deepest darkest hole and wonder whether we've made a mistake I'm trying to see the light, but it's not coming. Other messages would read, The devil is literally sitting on my shoulder 24-7. She makes me so angry, one day I'm afraid I will smack her too hard. I can't anymore. I'm afraid I'm going to take out my whole family if they announce this tonight. This was in reference to a lockdown nation address announcement. The children sniff me out wherever I go, and if they can't find me, they start screaming hysterically. Graham and I are despondent. Babies don't want to sleep at night. Leone doesn't get any attention after the two take it all. It feels like my fuse is just so short the whole time and I want to explode over the tiniest things. Graham and I don't get time alone. We barely talk to each other. I feel like I just want to run away. Tonight, Graham and I decided that our children will not abuse and scream at us and hit us any further. From now on, they will get hidings and all their nice things will be held back until they start showing some respect. Tonight, they threw corn at me and said the meat is disgusting. Then they hit me when I told them off. Maybe the twins are just in the terrible twos, but fuck. They are going to kill me. I was so angry tonight, I was shaking. Elsewhere, Lauren had said, Mums always feel this instantaneous love for their children, and I never really experienced it with my kids. I think there was something wrong with me. Three kids has really killed all the passion and a lot of happiness. I regularly want to smack mine, but Graham stops me. I would rather divorce my children. This was in relation to the news that one of her friends had separated from her partner. I wish I could give them back and start over. I would decide differently. A forensic expert analyst was also able to access Lauren's digital footprint in addition to her messages. And what he would come across was even more disturbing than the messages, to say the least. I mean, are you even ready? I highly doubt it, but let's get into it. These included the following, and I quote, Lethal dosage alprazolam in children, made on July 31st. Ambien lethal dose, made on August 14th. Most effective overdose in children, made on August 20th. 
drugs to overdose kits made in late August. You cannot even make this stuff up. She would also later state that she deleted these searches not because she was trying to hide something, but rather because it was part of her OCD habits before bed. A forensic pathologist would later also give evidence, but due to the gruesome nature, it would not be published. Next on the stand was a close family member who wished to remain anonymous. They would later testify that they were aware of Lauren's mental health issues. Although there was a lot of contact prior to immigration, after the family had left, the level of contact had decreased. When individuals had seen a photo of Lauren in New Zealand, she was barely recognizable, looking grey, tired and much thinner than they had remembered. Lauren's mother, Wendy Fawkes, also took the stand and she would speak about the reservations she had about the family immigrating. Prior to leaving, Lauren was apparently in the worst mental state her mother could ever remember, but friends and family decided not to address it. One of the final messages she received about her grandchildren, three days before they died, was that, they missed her a lot. One of Dickerson's lawyers would read the message out in court. It had said, The kids are very emotional over their grandparents, so we are just waiting for them to settle a bit more and then we can FaceTime on the weekend. Carla and Maya were walking around with bananas and talking to Opa Malcolm and Omar Wendy and Betty as if they have telephones. It was later revealed during the trial that Lauren had completed a total of 53 hours of interviews with five forensic psychiatrists for the defense and the prosecution. And the jury, well, they would hear from all of these expert witnesses. And of course, so will you. We'll start off with those who testified in her defense. Dr. Justin Barry Walsh first saw Lauren on the 10th of October 2021. During his session with her, which lasted an hour and a half, Lauren was crying for majority of the time and appeared incredibly depressed. She would state to him that she still felt that it was a good thing that her children were dead and thus free of all the problems and frustrations of the world. In a follow-up session with her two months later, she would tell him that waking up every day to her was like a kick in the guts, that she had no future and she just wanted to die. She also described a terrible guilt which had began about five weeks after being hospitalized. In a third session from May, she was overwhelmed when she heard her husband would not be attending her trial in person. She would state that she would do anything to change what had happened, although she still sometimes believed that she had saved her children from the pain of the world. And Dr. Barry Walsh's conclusions after these sessions, the weight of evidence is sufficient to sustain within the balance of probabilities the defense that Miss Dickerson was not guilty by reason of insanity. Forensic psychologist Ghazi Metoui, who also testified in her defense, would see Lauren on nine occasions, writing a 69-page report after their sessions. He had spent a total of 20 hours with her, with the first meeting being in December of 2021. 
He would describe her as feeling hopeless, helpless and with a worldview that was malevolent. She believed that her life and the lives of her children were condemned, so the kindest thing was for them to check out. Her first violent ideations apparently began when the twins were only six months old in May of 2019. She would tell him that she apparently thought it would be nice to not have the twins for a couple of days. Dickerson had also told him about the third time she had thoughts of harming her children. Remember I mentioned it earlier just before she left South Africa. She had said and I quote, I had thoughts of doing what ended up happening. This devil on my shoulder came. This could be a way. I felt like a seed was planted that day. His conclusion? Well, in summary, he believed that she met both the medical and legal threshold for both infanticide and insanity. The last psychiatrist to testify in her defense was Dr. Susan Hatters Friedman. Remember the published infanticide author? She conducted all of her interviews with Lauren via video link, not in person, over a year and a half after the murders. Yeah. 18 months to be precise. Oh, and also after Lauren had read several books, one being about postpartum depression. I'm just saying, use that information how you will. After the 10 hours spent with Lauren, Dr. Hattis Friedman had compiled a 66-page report. During these sets of interviews, Lauren would tell Dr. Hattis Friedman that she could not form a connection with her children and often felt underappreciated. She apparently often felt rejection, which at times escalated to anger. To summarize it, Dr. Hattis Friedman stated that Lauren could not be found guilty by reason of insanity. And she would conclude that Lauren thought she was removing her children from an unsafe environment, one she saw through her own depressed, psychotic state. She had said, and I quote, At the time of her offending, Dr. Lauren Dickerson was laboring under a disease of the mind, to such an extent that it rendered her incapable of knowing her actions were morally wrong. She would go on to say that she believed that Lauren was delusional and psychotic at the time of the incidents, despite other professional opinions not reaching this conclusion. And whose professional opinions am I speaking of? Well, boy oh boy, am I glad you asked. Dr. Mike Levy was the first forensic psychologist to interview Lauren six days after the murders. Altogether, over the five sessions and eight hours, Dr. McLevy would later state that although Lauren may suffer from a disease of the mind, the extent was not sufficient to render her incapable of understanding the nature of her actions. Lauren had neither displayed nor admitted to any delusional or psychiatric symptoms at the time of assessment. Lauren would go on to state that she, and I quote, didn't want to leave the children with Graham without a mum. She would tell Dr. McLevy that her attempt to take her own life was one of self-destruction, and the killing of her children was an extension of that. She would state that the murder was an altruistic motivation to save the children from suffering with her being such a bad mother. Dr. McLevy, however, would state that the murders had more to do with being a manifestation of control. 
Lauren would also see Dr. Eric Monasterio, the former clinical director of the Canterbury's Mental Health Services, with 24 years' experience as a psychiatric consultant. During this initial evaluation, which took place a month after the murders and subsequent sessions as he would spend nine hours with her, he would state that six months prior to the murders, Lauren was the happiest she had been in over a decade. That was until the lockdown, which saw her mood plummet. During their last interview, interestingly enough, Lauren expressed the desire to change some of what she had previously told him. What, you may ask? Well, it was particularly in regards to the messages she had sent her friends expressing violent thoughts towards her daughters on more than one occasion. Remember those? Monasterio would further testify that Lauren's depression could not be diagnosed as postpartum as her diagnosis of depression was established before she even gave birth. She had also sent messages regarding harming and killing her children during a period where she was in remission from her depression. He would also state that her checking their vitals to ensure that they were dead would also indicate that she was sane at the time. He would also state that during their assessment, she gave no indication that she killed her children to protect them from harm. Dr. Monasterio would reach the conclusion that Lauren was not significantly cognitively impaired at the time she killed her children. Prior to the murders, she had an extremely high level of functioning with her able to organize all the requirements to immigrate to New Zealand, which was known to not be straightforward. Just two days before the killings, she was in contact with others, reading the news and filling out immigration paperwork, indicating that she was not as impaired as some in her defense were making her out to be. So in case it wasn't evident by their testimony, Dr. McLevy and Dr. Monasterio were testifying for the Crown, the prosecution. And it was evident that in the space of a few months, Lauren's narrative had been reframed. And through her further interviews, particularly with the defense's psychiatrists, the altruistic motive for the murders suddenly came to light. Something that was questioned by the Crown, as they believed that idea was put into her mind by clinicians. Meh. I mean, fair thoughts. The inconsistencies within the manner that Lauren reported to each expert witness or psychiatrist was also important to take into account. And that was something that Justice Manda reminded the jury of. And so, after weeks of hearing evidence, expert testimony, and learning more about who Lauren was before, during, and after the murders, it was time for the jury to make a decision. On Monday, the 14th of August, 2023, the jurors began deliberation to decide one of four possible outcomes. One, whether Lauren was guilty of murder. Two, guilty of infanticide, but not murder. Three, guilty of murder, but not criminally liable for reasons of insanity. Or, Last but not least, four. Guilty of infanticide, but not criminally liable for reasons of insanity. There was also the fifth possible outcome, which was a hung jury if there was not a unanimous or majority verdict reached. And so they were off and the world waited with bated breath. The jury deliberated for a total of 15 hours, even asking to re-watch the police videos of both Lauren and Graham before ultimately reaching a decision. Two days later, on the 16th of August, the verdict was in. 
It was heard that 11 out of 12 jurors found Lauren Dickerson guilty of three counts of murder. That was enough to be considered a majority decision. And as the verdict was announced, Lauren remained stony-faced, emotionless. Do 11 of you find the defendant, Lauren Ann Dickerson, guilty of murder? Or do you find the defendant, Lauren Ann Dickerson, not guilty of murder? Guilty of murder. After the conviction was read out, however, some of the jurors, as well as Lauren's lawyers, were in tears. So you may be wondering, what happens now? Well, Lauren will be kept in custody at a hospital at Hillmorton Medical Institute, as she is still allegedly undergoing medical assessments. And there she will stay, until Justice Cameron Manda passes down her sentence. What I'm going to do now is remind you for sentencing for a date to be fixed. Um, I make an order under section 38.1c of the Criminal Procedure Mentally Impaired Persons Act um, for a health assessor to prepare an assessment report on you for the purpose of assisting the court to determine the type and length of the sentence that might be imposed and the nature of any requirement the court may impose as part of or as a condition of any sentence or order under subparagraph D of that section. Having made that order for an assessment report under section 38.1, uh, I order you to be detained in a hospital or secure facility for the purpose of that assessment, having received advice from your treating clinician that because of your present condition or presentation, a remand in prison would be inappropriate at this time, and that you are indeed presently subject to section 30 of the Mental Health Compulsory Assessment and Treatment Act. All right. A law professor from New Zealand believes Lauren could be facing a minimum of 13 years non-parole in prison, whilst other legal experts believe the length of sentence is impossible to predict given the complexity of the case and her mental health concerns. Lauren does, however, tick three of the criteria for a minimum non-parole period of 17 years or more. Those being that, one, her victims were underage young and vulnerable. Two, there were three killings, not just one. Three, the killings were particularly cruel and brutal. But that decision, of course, is up to the judge. He will need to decide whether or not she will face the maximum sentence of life in prison based on the results of her medical reports. Lauren will only be able to appeal once the sentence has been handed down. So, of course, as soon as there's an update, you'll be the first to know. And in case my fellow South Africans were curious, no. The South African government has absolutely nothing to do with criminal cases abroad unless they involve an extradition process. After her guilty verdict was read, Lauren's parents would release the following statement. They would say, and I quote, This was not our daughter, but a debilitating mental illness, which resulted in an awful tragedy, the details of which you by now are well aware. There are no winners in this tragedy. We would like to encourage families and individuals around the world to be aware of the symptoms of postpartum depression as early as possible, both for yourselves as well as close family and friends around you. If treated early and managed correctly, people can experience a full recovery. The person experiencing depression and those closest to them may not be able to recognize the signs or how serious postpartum depression can become. And there is so much of truth to that. The last thing I would ever want anyone to take from this is that every single mother who experiences postpartum depression will hurt their child or children because 
that is not the case at all. Mental health is already stigmatized enough as it is without spreading harmful ideologies like those. According to WebMD.com, it is not uncommon for women to get the baby blues after giving birth. This usually passes within a week or two. In postnatal depression, however, symptoms may be severe and don't always become evident until several months after birth. The causes of postnatal depression are complex. Hormonal changes, role changes, triggering of childhood memories, and lack of sleep. Social isolation and lack of support also play a role. Postnatal or postpartum depression involves symptoms like a lack of connection with your children, inability to bond, difficulty in coping with children, frustration and anger, feeling as though you're not a good mother, thoughts of harming yourself, or your children are not completely uncommon. Also, apparently, according to research, it can last for up to three years after the birth of a child. According to the Royal College of Psychiatrists, sleep deprivation is a major risk factor for developing postnatal psychosis, as is a family history of mental health conditions, especially postnatal psychosis in a close relative. Furthermore, the Morris Psychology Group touched on the increased risk of postpartum depression in older mothers. Lauren Dickerson is a complex case with many compounding factors at play. Whether postnatal depression was one of them at the time of the murder though, well, that's not for me to say. Not only did she have a previous history of depression spanning years before conception, but she underwent many rounds of IVF, suffered a late-term miscarriage, had multiple babies at the same time, and to add to that, she was a migrant in a new land. Which also brings about the overall stresses of moving itself. You know how even moving house within the same city or country is a mission? Yeah, well, now imagine moving continents. The psychological impact of immigration has been likened by some mental health professionals to being as stressful as a divorce. Yeah, you heard me. A divorce. Almost every environmental variable is being changed. One is forced to learn new things in a hurry, and the reliable support structures of a home environment are lost. Friends and family are often now separated by physical space, and one has to embrace an entire new way of living. These actions can leave many feeling disconnected from their sense of identity and self. And then, of course, we cannot forget another term, which I haven't mentioned as of yet, but if you're familiar with psychology, you will already be aware of it. Along with infanticide, filicide soon became another term that many were aware of after the news of this case broke. Yep, you guessed it. Filicide is the deliberate act of a parent killing their child. This horrific act is often rooted in five main reasons. The first is altruistic. For example, when a child is terminally ill, physically or psychologically handicapped or in extreme pain. Therefore, the parent might kill the child out of love. Second, acute psychotic. This is when a mother, for example, would believe that a fate worse than death could affect the child. Third would be an unwanted child. The murder of a child who was not or is no longer wanted and is killed by active aggression or passive neglect. Think Alexi Treviso, a case which many of you would have heard of that occurred quite recently. 
Accidentally, this would include neglect, which is considered unintentional in these cases. The mother only realizes her neglect when the child dies. This includes deaths due to chronic physical abuse, where the intent was to punish rather than kill. In this case, think of Poppy van der Merfe, a case I covered a few months back. Lastly, there is revenge on a spouse. This is rooted in the Medea complex, an ancient Greek myth in which the enchantress Medea kills her kids to punish her unfaithful husband, Jason. It is also known as retaliatory murder, which is considered to be a form of revenge. No matter what the reason though, there is no way to sugarcoat how cruel these acts often are. When this trial first gained traction, there were so many similarities that were pointed out between the the infamous Andrea Yates and Lauren Dickerson. I won't go into extreme detail as this is not her case, but in 2001, 37 year old Andrea confessed to drowning her five children, all under the age of seven years old, in the bath. She would be sentenced to life in prison, but after appealing, that sentence was overturned. To sum it up extremely briefly, here are some of the similarities between the two. One, they were both medical professionals. Andrea was a nurse, Lauren was a general practitioner. Two, both had husbands who were professionally accomplished. Andrea's husband was an engineer for NASA and Lauren's husband was an orthopedic surgeon. Three, both women suffered from miscarriages. Four, both women waited for their husbands to leave before completing the killings. Andrea waited for her husband to leave in the morning before drowning her children. Lauren waited for her husband to leave in the evening before smothering her children. Five, both women suffered from mental illness and postpartum depression. Regardless of the similarities, as it stands, Lauren has been found guilty. But there are still those who don't believe that the verdict is correct. The prosecution maintained that Lauren had lifelong issues with perfectionism, was resentful of the way her children got in between her relationship with her husband, and the unpredictable nature of children in general made her snap. According to them, she murdered her children out of anger, her text messages about them from previous months and years reiterating her harbored resentment. The defense, however, continues to maintain that Lauren had suffered a psychological breakdown on the night of the murders as a result of pre-existing mental conditions, stressful environmental factors, and overwhelming emotions she was experiencing, believing she was protecting her children from worse harms. Whether you choose to believe the guilty verdict and the prosecution, or whether you choose to believe Lauren's version of events and the defense, I noticed something quite interesting in the way this case was reported and received, particularly within South Africa. As opposed to many women of color who commit crimes and are almost 100% vilified by everyone who hears about them, Lauren's case was a little different. I noticed that she was subject to more sympathy, understanding, and even pity in the conversations around the crime. Notice, however, that I did say more, not all. Not everyone was feeling pity for her, obviously. And before you say anything, it's not simply because of her postpartum depression diagnosis that perhaps others could relate to. Because the other woman that I've also mentioned, many have had mental illnesses at play prior to committing the crimes that they did. But somehow, it's just never received in the same way. Let me explain. Just one day before her very public trial by jury began, an article was published and shared worldwide about Lauren. 
It began by speaking about the state of the hospital that she was being kept in, how the gardens had fallen to ruin during the lockdown and how they are now being brought back to life. This is how she was described. And of course, I quote, And the quiet woman, slowly bringing it back to life, seems to have found some solace between the foliage and the soil. The woman who spends her days pottering in the garden is Lauren Dickerson, the former South African doctor who's been charged with the murders of her children, two-year-old twins Maya and Carla, and their older sister, Leonay. Six. I think it's interesting to say the least. Just hear me out. A woman who kidnapped an infant baby and newborn over two decades ago, raised her, loved her as her own, didn't ill-treat her, but still was discovered for the shocking crime that she committed, was convicted and was sent to prison, was just released in August of this year after serving her sentence. She, however, still has the public persecuting her and baying for blood. Now, by no means am I excusing her horrendous actions and crime, but the child that she took is still alive today. Lauren's children, on the other hand, had their lives brutally taken from them. I mean, I'm pretty certain that most of you are not even aware of what a human body, especially a child's, would endure and would look like after being strangled, let alone strangled with cable ties. For the sake of this not being an episode for shock value, I will leave that up to you to do your own research. The point is, the effect of race on the perception of crime is always fascinating to me. It appears that if one belongs to a particular race group and social class, there is instantly more sympathy at play and also the inference that there must be more factors to be blamed for why the crime was committed. Versus if one belongs to a lower particular social group or a different race, for example. And this perception trickles into the victims as well. I will very often have individuals from my online community letting me know that certain victims receive far more news coverage and attention than others, often based on their race and social standing. Just some food for thought. But I encourage you, next time you see a report about a specific crime on your local Facebook group, read the comment section and see how drastically perceptions will differ, given who the perpetrator is. In a completely different example, this time looking at the effect of physical appearance on the perception of crime, take for instance Jeremy Meeks, a convicted felon who became instantly popular once his mugshot was posted online on Facebook in 2014. Barely anyone was bothered by the crime he had actually committed. Two years later, after his release from prison, he became a model. Yeah, I kid you not. My point is, regardless of how you view Lauren's actions, whether you think she is guilty or not, the fact remains that three beautiful little girls will no longer have the chance at life. They will never grow up post crazy TikTok dances, or even graduate high school. Their lives were abruptly and brutally ended. And for that, there is no redemption. There are no winners in this tragedy. There is no real sense of justice, no matter what the verdict was. Today, we remember Leonay, the dreamer, unicorn lover and painter. We remember Carla, the sporty, vibrant ray of sunshine. We remember Maya, 
the happy-go-lucky, smiley little angel. We remember them today and always. Thank you for being a part of this episode and this journey with me. And thank you for paying homage to their memories. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are.